Some of you uh, come out of a, uh, a Catholic or an Orthodox tradition where they uh, will actually have a declaration of who is a saint. And if you've ever been overseas or if you've ever looked at the church calendar, you see all these saint days. And uh, I did a little research, and it's amazing uh, the process that one has to go through to become uh, a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there are actually some specific stages that are to be met on the path. First of all, someone who's brought up to be a saint is considered a servant of God, uh, and uh, they are therefore called a servant of God. Then after that step, uh, they uh, could be called venerable, uh, and that is if they led a heroic, uh, a life of heroic virtue. Uh, once that stepped, if they continue on the, the track to sainthood, uh, the church establishes one miracle performed by this individual, uh, then the pope would be, uh, be called out and he would approve that and they would be called blessed. So that would be the title associated with them. Associated with them. Then the final step would be that of a saint. That is, they have to perform another miracle. That's, so that's two miracles. Also have to be, again, approved by the Pope. The Pope has to look at uh, the various uh, objections. Uh, and then the, the canonization procedure uh, is publicly, reckon, uh, uh, publicly pronounced and the person is declared a saint. Other things that they consider is uh, incorruptibility. That is that the person's body didn't decay. That could also make you a saint. That was the case evidently for St. Catherine of Siena, whose body didn't decay for 600 years. Uh, probably ate a lot of kale, Catherine. Um, <laughs> Uh, then, there's, uh, the, uh, the, then there's liquefaction, that is the dried blood of the saint, long dead, can miraculously liquefies on a feast day. This is said of San Geromo of Italy, who died in 305, that on every September 19th, his dried blood liquefies. And then the one that I find uh, amazing is the odor of sanctity. <laughs> that is that when you rot, you smell like roses. And that was the case for Teresa Valvea, who I've actually quoted before, uh, for nine months. It was said that she produced an odor that was attractive rather, rather than uh, unattractive. There is a considerable amount of effort that goes into declaring whether someone is a saint or not. And it's political and it's bureaucratic and it's, uh, it would be very, very difficult to go through this procedure, I would imagine. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say is the, is the qualification of being a saint? Well, it's being a Christian. Just an ordinary call by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, adopted into the kingdom of God, born again Christian. Every Christian is the saint. And it doesn't take anybody's approval but God's approval. The biblical definition of a Christian is throughout uh, 2 Corinthians as we begin uh, our journey through that wonderful letter of Paul. In verse 517, Paul says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. In verse 318, he says, But we all with an unveiled face as in a mirror, of the, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So 2 Corinthians provides us with profound theology, and it's an incredibly personal account of the Apostle Paul's struggle with the Corinthians church. And even in the height, in the midst of that difficult struggle, struggle he gives those Corinthians, sinful as they are, the glorious title of saint. 
So saints of God, let us begin this wonderful journey in this new wonderful book for us, 2 Corinthians, on this Lord's Day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith we turn to you and we thank you for uh, the, the, the blessings that you have given us through going through the gospel of Mark for some year and a half. And now we begin a new book of Holy Scripture in 2 Corinthians. And it is an overwhelmingly powerful and an overwhelmingly comfortable book. We are all struggling with despair and discouragement and overwhelming life and weakness of body and of mind and of bank account. And we thank you that 2 Corinthians is, are, is written for such weak saints as we are. So bless us now, we pray, as we begin this journey in this wonderful passage of Holy Scripture, this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul that were written to people 2,000 years ago but has everything to do with life in the year 2021 in America as well. And Lord, I would be remiss if I didn't pray for those who couldn't be with us today. I think especially of our beloved Terry, who is struggling through the effects of COVID. And we pray blessings and healing upon her, especially that her headaches would go away and that she would be able to sleep well. And for all those who are viewing this today, that they pay careful attention. They'd be encouraged about what you say about yourself and about us. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at... Just the first two verses today, uh, this is going to be something of an introduction into the, the, the letter uh, of the Apostle Paul, and I want to read that introduction to you, and then we're going to look, and you'll notice in your home group help insert, we have a, something of a brief outline uh, uh, set out for you that might help you follow along, help you take notes if you have an interest in doing that. Also, that includes some questions for our home groups and also for your personal devotion. We don't want you just to leave the sermon here. We want you to continue to interact with God's holy word uh, over, over the, the weeks here. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, God says, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here, first of all, in the first part of verse 1, the, the, the sender, and then we'll see the recipients, uh, and then we'll close with, uh, with the greeting that comes from the Apostle Paul. But it says here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. This was customary in ancient letters to start off with the, the person who's writing the letter. It's a great idea. I mean, how many of you get a card from somebody and the first thing you do is turn to the back and say, who'd this come from? You know, usually, you, you, and we end up having to turn to the back. They start off by saying, here I am, I'm Paul, and I am sending you a letter. He, of course, identifies himself as the apostle of Christ. Now, there are many themes to 2 Corinthians. It's a little bit of a challenge to try to find a, a particular theme. Uh, I chose for the theme that, that we have here on this banner up here uh, under 2 Corinthians, uh, the, 2 Corinthians, the verse from 2 Corinthians 3.18, which I just read, with the theme of being transformed. We all, with an unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It's a, it's a theme that talks about the sanctification of a believer, 
that we are to become more and more Christ-like through the grace that comes to us from God and, and, and frankly, the diligent effort also uh, of, of the saints. But one of the other themes, really, is, is Paul's defense of his apostleship. Paul is always having to say, I'm a real apostle, I'm a real apostle, I'm a real apostle. Because false teachers would go in and try to exploit the fact that Paul, you know, did not start off as a real apostle. What did he start off as? He started off as a terrorist. He was killing Christians, right? He wasn't part of the original group. He wasn't a, a disciple of John the Baptist. He didn't minister, be ministered to or minister to Jesus uh, in Galilee for all those years. He, he, he wasn't part of the upper room in the first Lord's Supper, uh, as were so, so many others. And, and, and if you remember in Acts chapter 1, when Judas, they had to replace Judas, they drew lots and they came up with a Matthias. So you literally might have false teachers going into places like Corinth and saying, oh, the Apostle Paul, he's a falsifier. Matthias is actually the replacement for Judas, not Paul. But, of course, we know better because we've read the rest of the book of Acts, right? What happened to the Apostle Paul? The resurrected Jesus Christ himself commissioned the Apostle Paul. Acts 9, 15, Jesus says, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul was just as much an apostle as Peter. But it's amazing how false teachers tried to exploit that. So he starts off by saying, I am an apostle. And why? He is an apostle by the will of God. God chose him. God chooses church leaders. God, we, in faith, we believe God has chosen our church leaders. He has called them for the special service of serving the saints, the deacons, that word actually means servant, and they, they have a servant role to, to help. They're going to be very active in today's lunch. And, and, and I love seeing these men. You know, the last time I saw a deacon take the garbage out, the guy had a Ph.D. in mathematics taking the garbage out. We think, well, isn't that below him? He doesn't think so. He's a servant. By the way, guess what would happen if he didn't take the garbage out? You wouldn't want to come to church the next week. That's what a servant does. They humble themselves, and they humble themselves in the model of Christ himself who washed his disciples' feet. We also have, of course, elders, and uh, Paul also gives us a description of what an elder or really even a man of God or even a deacon uh, should look like. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, not, uh, but gentle, uh, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping all his children under control with all dignity. So again, these are imperfect people. They're sinful people. They might even question whether or not they're qualified, but it, they are God's people. God shows Paul. God chooses church leaders. There is a confidence that we should have about that. And then Paul, of course, is also bringing uh, greetings from his beloved Timothy. Timothy, our brother, uh, the men's Bible study just went through uh, the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy. We know a lot about Timothy. Uh, there's a good bit of information about him. He was such a faithful servant uh, of the Apostle Paul. He's from Lystra. His mama and his grandmother were devoted Christians. His father was a pagan. He had kind of a mixed family there. His father was a Greek pagan. Uh, he was Paul's uh, 
uh, ambassador to the churches of, of Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Ephesus, and he actually helped uh, establish the church at Corinth. So Timothy is well known to the Corinthians. Now we see the recipients here to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who were th- throughout Achaia. Uh, so notice this. It is the church of God. It is not our church. It's God's church. Now, one of the things that, and I didn't come up with the name, but one of the things I like about our church is his, is his name for him. You know, it's Christ Reformed Church. It's not named for a, a person. It's named for Jesus Christ. That reminds us this is Christ's church, okay? So, it, so that we have to put aside our own individual agendas, and make sure that whatever our desire is, it is in match with uh, hopefully what this desor- the Lord's desire is for our church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. You know, you don't have that promise if it's your church. <laughs> the gates of hell really might overpower your own church. And there's too much out there in terms of evangelical Christianity and personality cult of dynamic leaders and it can, it can actually happen. It kind of becomes their church. But please be careful with your words. Remember, this is Christ's church. And it's to those which are in Corinth. Now, you, you, you know maybe a little bit about Corinth. Let me help you a little bit more. We have gone through 1 Corinthians before as well. But, but you, it, the, probably the summary is this, is Corinth was a mess. It was a mess. The city's a mess. The church was a mess because it reflected the city. You know, you don't, uh, you don't get saved and all of a sudden become this perfect individual. That'll happen once you go to heaven. Uh, but the Corinthian church was a mess. But part of it was because of the, 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 the standing that Corinth had in the Roman world. It was uh, a, a very important city rivaling Athens in many ways. But the Romans, nice people that they were in 146 B.C., invaded Corinth, destroyed the town, and killed everybody or sold them into slavery. Uh, and then it sat there uh, unbuilt for about 100 years. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt it, and he resettled it with freed slaves and with former Roman soldiers. Uh, and so in 44 B.C., it was uh, built completely over. Uh, and wh- so by the time Paul gets there in around 50 A.D., the city was eight, 80 years old and had a population of about 80,000. And it again had come to great prominence. It was probably up there with Rome and with Alexandria, Egypt, in terms of its prominence. And they were very, very proud of that. But it's all kind of nouveau riche money. There was no landed gentry in Corinth because the landed gentry had all been killed a hundred years before. So these were all kind of middle class people, freed slaves, army veterans and that kind of thing. Uh, But they had a very strategic location. Uh, It was right there, right before the Peloponnese Peninsula that comes down Greece into the Aegean and Mediterranean Sea. And what happened is that journey around the peninsula was very dangerous. So what people would do is if they would bring cargo to get it past Greece, they would stop right there, that narrow place about four miles across, and they would unload it at the, the port city of Chintria or Lachium, which were on either side of Corinth, and they would move the cargo across through the city of Corinth onto the other side and avoid that dangerous passage. So it became, people said, the master of harbors, the crossroads of Greece, and a passage for all mankind. So it was really a port city. It had a number of Jews. When they got kicked out of Rome, the Jews uh, moved to uh, Corinth. So it had a real international flair. It was famous for its brass and its pottery, uh, but it also was extremely immoral. 
There was a saying in the Roman world, to be a Corinthian girl would be to be a prostitute or to have very loose morals. So for all of their fame, uh, Corinth, they're really their major export in a lot of ways was pride. Um, <clears throat> Ray Stebbin, who's a pastor in California, when he preaches on First and Second uh, Corinthians, he calls it First and Second Californians. If that gives you a sense about what Corinth must have been like. So Paul's going there and trying to plant a church in all the middle of that hot mess. Uh, and he ends up having a, a struggle somewhat with that. He did that with the help of Aquila and Priscilla and then later with Silas uh, and Timothy. And during the midst of that, we have one of those amazing times when Jesus talks to the Apostle Paul. Uh, and I think Paul might have been concerned about some of the opposition that was coming up. And Jesus comes and sees Paul's in uh, 1 Corinthians 18. Paul says, the Lord said to Paul here in the night vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. Can you imagine having your pastor be the apostle Paul for 18 months? You would think, man, that is one well-established church. Uh, the problem is once Paul went off to Ephesus, where he stayed for two, three years, uh, once he went off to Ephesus, everything started to come unraveled again. He got word that everything was going uh, poorly. So let me give you a sense about Paul's connection with the Corinthian church. He actually wrote four letters. We have two of them. And let me kind of give you an order of how all that works. So after about a year, he wrote his first letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, which was lost to us, uh, 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 first, first letter to the Corinthians, and that's lost to us. Uh, he refers to that letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then the Corinthian church remained unrepentant, so Paul wrote a second letter about a year after that. This is the letter we know as 1 Corinthians, okay? So Timothy was traveling through Corinth. He, uh, he found that the church was a mess. He gives a report back to uh, Paul. And then Paul in, ref, goes and has a, what he refers to in 2 Corinthians, a painful visit. The church was on the verge of apostasy. Uh, false teachers, probably Judaizers, had come in, and they taught what they taught in Galatia, that you've got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Uh, and then they were attacking Paul's character and that kind of thing. So then uh, he sent Titus, Paul sent Titus with a third letter, which, which uh, he describes in 2 Corinthians 2.4. And he says this, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, uh, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you should know the love which I have especially for you. I mean, just there's a tenderness in these Corinthian letters. It's, it's like the tenderness a parent has for, for a prodigal child. His heart is breaking for these people because he loves them. And they're making themselves miserable with all of their sin. They're making Paul miserable. They're also making themselves literal, uh, uh, miserable. Now we have the fourth letter, which is our Second Corinthians. Uh, that, that, second, that third letter must have made a difference. They started to repent. So then he starts writing Second Corinthians. But he's kind of like, it's interesting. There's a real break in the, in the story as you read through Second Corinthians. It's like he was writing all these things. On his way there, he got word that the Corinthians church was doing well. And then he starts talking about the collection and some different things like that. And, of course, we'll journey through uh, for the next number of months going through those. But he writes this with all the saints also, not only Corinthians, but with all the saints who are th throughout Achaia. Now, the, the Romans had divided Greece up into two big provinces, Achaia to the south, Macedonia to the north. So he, he meant this to be a circular letter, as he often means with his letters. But what I love about this is he says, with all the saints throughout Achaia. That word saint 
again, because of the confusion of, uh, of, 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 of really just bad doctrine and bad church practice, we're confused about what that, mean, that word means. It actually is from the words hagios. It actually means uh, from the word hagos, which means religious all. Psalm 16 says this, For as the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all of my delight. The Puritan Thomas Watson says, Saints are the walking pictures of God. Now, who are saints? Saints are people who are born again. They're Christians. If you're three years old or 30 years old or 93 years old, if you are a true Christian, you are a saint. You don't have to get anybody's approval. You've got God's stamp of approval on you by sealing you with the Holy Spirit. So these saints that he's writing to in a cave, they hadn't gone through some bureaucratic process and performed two miracles and had their, uh, their body smell like roses. You know, they're just Christians. How is it that we complicate the most simple things of Holy Scripture? This is one of the reasons why we're known as a Reformed church. The Protestant Reformation 500 years ago was all about getting back to what the Bible's definitions are. And that includes the definition of a saint. And one of the beautiful things about that is that we are saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. You've got the same father that the saints of Achaia, the saints of Corinth had. And it's just a beautiful thing to consider the fact that we, with all of our imperfections, all of the stupid things we do, think about the sins you confess during our time of confession. Can you believe you did those sins again? Don't you get to the point where you think, God, I'm, I'm coming, having to come to you again on the same sin over and over and over again. I just can't seem to get my life together. And yet, when God sees you because of his son, he sees you as holy, righteous, a child of God, saved for eternal life. And he gives them grace and peace and the greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, with the exception of Galatians, Paul begins all of his letters with grace uh, and peace. These two great attributes that should characterize the lives of a saint. He says here, grace to you. He's actually doing a little bit of a word play, which is lost in the English. But the, the Greek word for hello is charion. And uh, the word for grace is cherish. So he's actually kind of doing a little bit of a word play, word play instead of saying hello. He's saying grace towards you because he's talking to Christians. What is grace? What is grace? And if you had one word to describe Christianity, it'd probably be the word grace. The undeserved favor of God towards sinners. You know, again, we had a membership induction today and we had an opportunity to interview people. And, uh, and, and the youngest amongst us, we ask, why, why is it that you should be able to go to heaven? And the youngest amongst us says, I, I shouldn't be. I'm a sinner. I am just I can go to heaven because of the grace of God. That's Christianity. But, you know, isn't it funny? As simple as that is, that is very difficult for people to fathom. Every, every man-made religion has to do with earning God's favor through ceremony or good works or something. Only Christianity says you can't do it. It also helps us with sanctification as we are being transformed here. We can't do it. It takes God's grace to save us and to sanctify us. And then he says, of course, peace. That comes from the Jewish concept of shalom, and Paul being a, a Jew. The idea of a, a, a promise of flourishing well-being that comes from being a right relationship with the living God. Uh, folks, if you're not a Christian, you're just not going to have grace and peace. 
or you're going to look for grace and peace in your circumstances or out of the end of a bottle. That's what the world does. Or by being distracted through activity or through the pride of success or you just fill in the blank. We're always looking for grace and peace. There's an unsettledness about being a human being. But for the Christian, they can rest. The grace and the peace comes to them regardless of their circumstances from, uh, from who? From God the Father, God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. These two great sources. Notice he, get, he says the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, curios, meaning authority. God, the Lord is over us. Jesus, Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. And then Christ, he is the anointed one, the Messiah of the Hebrews. He has all three anointed offices, prophet, priest, and king. He fulfilled it all. The reason why we can have grace and peace is because he did fulfill it all. And he died in our stead. So this really ought to be a goal of ours, is to, is to get to know God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to such an extent that regardless of our circumstances, we have grace and peace. And let me tell you, we've got, I'm looking out, we've got some difficult circumstances going on in our church. We always have, but it just seems to be intensified these days. Even in the midst of the most difficult trials, you can have grace and peace. And that's really next week's story. That's really the idea of suffering uh, that Paul continues to, to drive home as he goes through 2 Corinthians. So here you've got Paul has this, uh, this commit, commitment to the Corinthians. Look how many letters he has written to them, how many visits he's paid to them, how many times he's sent somebody to them. He loves the Corinthians, and they drove him absolutely crazy. Any of us who've ever invested in the lives of others, perhaps the life of a child even, and they have rebelled, and they have gone the way of the world, and they have broken our hearts, we're going to enjoy this ride on 2 Corinthians over this next year. But it's going to be painful. Life is painful. You know, I love the honesty of the Bible. Life is hard, but God is good. Now, there's a lot of people out there saying that you shouldn't be having a hard life. You ought to be wealthy and everything else. And if you're not, you must be, there must be some sin in your life. That's just a lie, folks. That's just a lie. The best of us have enormous trials because it makes us better. The path to grace and peace, folks, one of the, one of the messages of 2 Corinthians is suffering. It's suffering. It's ratcheting up the maturity so that we can go above the circumstances that we're in. Now, who knows that better than your Apostle Paul? <laughs> Second Corinthians, you know, I mentioned Paul's uh, commissioning from the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9. It goes on to say, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. We think about Paul being shipwrecked and Paul being stoned and Paul being whipped and everything, but I guarantee he would tell you that the emotional suffering that he went through over the Corinthian church was probably greater than all of those things. And I think we can relate to that in many ways. So we're going to see, as one commentator says, the motif that keeps emerging throughout this epistle is that weakness is the source of strength and suffering is the vehicle for God's power and for God's glory. So, again, keeping with our, with our theme and our banners, these other two banners that you've got uh, over to your right and to your left, these are sort of a summary of our church's mission statement. And really, they fit as a summary of 2 Corinthians in so many ways. We're go our, our goal is to the worshiping and the glorifying and the serving of God. 
and as a church, the uh, making, maturing, and the mobilization of Christians. That's what we're all about. How are we possibly going to do that? By being transformed and by living a life of grace and peace, by living a life as a saint. I'm looking forward to this ride as we go through 2 Corinthians and as we all realize the great power and grace and peace that can come through the life of a saint. Father, please show us truths, even though sometimes our circumstances would say they're not true. And there may have been times we've been tempted to say this is not true. But we thank you. One of the truths of being a saint is even when we're upset with you and having doubts, we can't leave you. We're locked in. There's a perseverance of the saints goes both ways. Not only would you not abandon us, but we can't leave you. So thank you, God, for the confidence that comes and the assurance that comes from your holy word and from the Holy Spirit within us. And we come before you, and every time we think about being transformed, every time we think about being a saint, every time we think about uh, what it means to be sanctified, we just realize how short we fall, how we miss the mark. But we can thank you, Lord, that we can approach the throne of grace because our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled it all completely, 100%. And while he took our sins on the cross, he gave us his righteousness so that we can look to heaven and count ourselves as children of the living God. Let that make a difference in our lives as we seek to live the lives of saints today. In Christ's name, amen.